the sermon is the excellence of Jesus, and the text is the first three verses of the first chapter, and then the rest of the letter is really the exposition and application of the truth of what is found in these three verses. So, in good homiletical fashion, you have a, you have a three-point exposition, a three-point sermon. Point one, Jesus is more excellent than the angels. That's Hebrews 1, 4 through 2, 18. Jesus is more excellent than Moses and Joshua. That's Hebrews 3, 1 through 4, 13. And the bulk of the letter... Jesus, more excellent than Aaron and Melchizedek, Hebrews 4, 14 through 10, 18, uh, focuses so much on the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the sacrificial system, um, all of these things that would have been very, very important to what was, was probably pretty largely a Jewish audience, at least people familiar with uh, the Old Testament, the Jewish background, um, uh, to the New Testament gospel. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, obviously a lot of focus there. And then the last part of the, the, the letter is the application, which in several different ways is an admonition or an encouragement to cling to Jesus as the more excellent way. So that's, that's sort of how we're thinking about this. And um, and if you're reading the letter, which I've encouraged you to do, is just read it and reread it so you can familiar, familiarize yourself with it. Um, you, you know, you'll see sprinkled throughout the letter these warnings and admonitions and encouragements, um, which which we'll see uh, this evening as we as we make our way through this portion of the letter. And that's again, that's good homiletical practice. That's good preaching, constantly to be applying what's being exposed, what's being opened up, applying it and, and providing encouragements and admonitions and even, even warnings. So that's our basic outline. And um, a couple of weeks ago or so, we, we looked at these first few verses and those first three verses uh, pro- provide us with what I've called in the notes, a sevenfold affirmation of Jesus' excellency. And that is um, <clears throat> long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and those things that we looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago. That's our basic text. And then we began to look uh, two weeks ago, at this first point, Jesus is more excellent than the angels. And in chapter 1, um, I found it interesting, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through, uh, through 13, um, this sevenfold scriptural attestation to Jesus' excellency. And that's, that's a point worth, uh, worth camping on for just a second. You see this uh, certainly in, in Paul's letter to the Hebrews, or in uh, this letter to the Hebrews. You see it in Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, you see New Testament writers repeatedly justifying their arguments by appeals to the Old Testament, by, by appeals to Scripture. 
whether by explicit reference to specific texts or through reference to various metaphors and images and that sort of thing. I mean, the Revelation, uh, you know, in one sense is, a, is, is the classic illustration of this. Uh, the last book of the Bible is just, I mean, everything in that book is connected back, right? Modern expositors tend to want to connect it forward. But the right way, really, to read the Revelation is to look back and see all the connections there are, all the allusions as well as explicit references to specific texts throughout that book. And that's what the writer is doing here. He's, he's making his argument based upon, rooted in, grounded upon um, Old Testament scripture, which was, right, the Bible of the day. That, that was the Bible. Um, the, the New Testament canon was emerging um, by the time Hebrews uh, was written, there were, there were certainly other New Testament letters that were uh, beginning to be in use, widely used among the churches. The Gospels were beginning to be uh, written, uh, so that by the time of John, the New Testament uh, letters, the Gospels and the letters, and then even including the Revelation, those, those were all composed. It was a while yet before they were actually brought together in a, in a book, right? Um, but the basic Bible of the folks who were reading this letter, as well as uh, uh, those to whom Paul ministered and, and others, the basic Bible was the Old Testament. So he's making his argument, grounding his argument for the excellence of Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. And that's what you see in chapter 1. Um, it is this scriptural attestation to or uh, argument for the excellency of Jesus. Jesus being more excellent than the angels. Now, the, the question that arises, just <clears throat> working down through the outline, point number two under letter B, Jesus more excellent than the angels. Point number two, you know, what is the role of angels? Why this why this interest in angels? Um, clearly, and again, this is, a, this is a thing worth remembering. New Testament writers, in fact, all of the biblical writers, write at a particular place and a particular time addressing particular concerns. Okay? You know, the, the Bible doesn't just kind of fall out of the sky. It, 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 it emerges... The, the, the writers of Scripture write what they write because they are in particular places, in particular times, addressing particular concerns. And you know, if we had time tonight, we could illustrate this in a thousand different ways. Well, the, the author is writing to address particular concerns, and these readers have an understanding of angelic beings and and their beliefs in or convictions about angelic beings seem to be posing a threat to what is the real concern of the writer to the Hebrews, and that is to present the excellency of Jesus. Okay? Now, why is it that this, this is, uh, is an issue? Well, it, seems, it just seems as you, uh, as you think about uh, across the Old Testament 
the presence of and the place of angels, that there is the possibility that people could conceive of angelic beings uh, in, in, this, in this sort of exalted kind of a place, a place that actually could threaten the supremacy or the superiority or the excellence of Jesus. They are all over the place, right? <clears throat> um, again, we, we, we don't want to take the time, I'd love to, but we don't want to take the time to look at these passages, but I've listed some passages where angelic beings play a, play, play a prominent role in the story of redemption. Genesis 19 is uh, Abraham's encounter with three angelic beings and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? And that's Abraham's appeal, uh, where Abraham appeals uh, to the Lord. So there is this, that encounter. Uh, Genesis 28 is Jacob's experience with, with an angel um, when, when he has his dream, right? The, the dream of the ladder ascending and descending. Uh, Psalm 103, just kind of glancing off of these things, Psalm 103 makes reference uh, to angelic beings and their works. Daniel 3, Daniel 6, Daniel 9, Daniel 10. Those are all passages in which angels play a prominent role. Gabriel 1, Michael 1. Those uh, uh, angelic beings figure in Daniel's visions. Uh, And then, you know, just to kind of bridge over into the New Testament, I've included Mark 1, verses 12 and 13, uh, where Mark records that uh, after the temptation of Jesus, the angels ministered to Jesus. And this morning we saw in Luke 22, uh, verse 43, that at the time of Jesus um, praying in the garden, an angel appeared to Jesus, strengthening him. So the author of this letter uh, describes the role, the first role of angelic beings as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to, our, who are to inherit salvation. Ministering spirits. Now that's you should be encouraged by that. <clears throat> you should be encouraged. And I, I, you know, this is one of those things you, you sort of wish the Bible would say a little bit more than it does. You, you'd kind of like to know exactly how they're engaged currently, you know. I think the point is we get enough evidence, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, to understand that we're not in this thing alone. Right? It's that whole business of, of, of there being one reality comprised of two aspects. There's the seen part, and there's the unseen part, right? And I don't know if you noticed this this morning in the text. I I, I so wanted to comment on this. But when Judas comes to confront Jesus in the garden and brings that rabble with him, Jesus' response to them as as he... told his disciples basically to put away their knives and swords or whatever. He spoke to Judas and those who were with Judas and said, this is your hour and 
the power of darkness. Remember a couple of weeks ago in talking about about Herod, I made reference to the interwovenness of these two aspects of the one reality, the seen and the unseen. And don't you find it striking that Jesus, in in that moment, is acknowledging the presence, the reality of both aspects of this reality, the seen and the unseen. So, I don't know what's going on around here, but there's something going on around here. And you should be encouraged by that because this first first point here, the end of chapter 1, is that angelic beings are ministering spirits sent out to serve you. To serve you. Exactly how... I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And, we, and we, we really ought not speculate beyond what the scriptures do indicate. We should, we should be content with what the scriptures say, not go beyond what the scriptures say, but derive encouragement from what the scriptures say, that in the unseen aspect of this two-aspect reality, There are angelic beings who are sent out to serve you, to serve those who are to inherit salvation. So that's that's number one. They're ministering spirits. The second thing, so and and that's just that's the writer's comment, having again from the scriptures, having presented Jesus as more excellent than the angels. The question is, all right, if Jesus is more excellent than the angels, then what's the function of angels? Well, this is the function of angels. This is what they do. They did it for Abraham. They did it for Jacob. They did it for Israel, uh, which we'll see in just a second. Um, They did it for Daniel. They did it for Jesus, okay, ministering spirits. Then as we come to chapter 2, we get, we get some additional interesting information concerning uh, angelic beings. And that is that they are agents of the administration of the Old Covenant. Look at Hebrews 2. Uh, let me read verses 1 through 4. Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. You see that? What's being contrasted here? What's being contrasted is what was declared by the angels with what was declared by the Lord. Okay? So the angelic beings are involved in the administration of the Old Covenant. Jesus, by contrast, clearly, is involved in the administration of the New Covenant, the Greater Covenant, which was declared first by the Lord, attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his his will." Now, let me, I do, I do want to look um, at just a couple of passages um, in, in relation to this. Um, look first at Acts 7, 
verse 53, which is near the end of Stephen's defense. The, the whole of the seventh chapter is taken up with Stephen's defense. And Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin is what really sets us up for the Apostle Paul's conversion. Okay? And Stephen, in Stephen's defense, he is chronicling God's redemptive activity in behalf of the nation. Um, but, but then he gets to the punchline. Um, Verse 51 of Acts chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And then this this is the verse that gives us an understanding of what is in the minds of people who are contemporary with the folks who received this letter to the Hebrews. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So it's, it's, it's in the mind of Stephen, and it's in, clearly, it seems, in the minds of those to whom the writer is sending this letter to the Hebrews that angelic beings were involved in um, the delivery of and establishing of the covenant through Moses with the nation Israel, okay? Now, we ask, why is that the case? Well, let me have you look look back at some passages in Exodus. Um, And and honestly, I, I, I haven't done anything to read Jewish commentaries on the book of Exodus, stuff that would have been available, you know, rabbinic teachings, stuff that would have been available to people like Stephen and Jews of the, of the first century to know what those commentaries might have had to say about the passages we're going to look at, which might have shaped the thinking of those first century Jews. You understand what I'm saying? I, I haven't done any of that. I'm just taking you to the texts and connecting some dots, trying to connect some dots between what you see in Hebrews chapter 2, Acts chapter 7, back with what you read in, um, in Exodus. Uh, first, Exodus 13. <clears throat> I hope I have the right passage here. I do. Exodus 13, uh, verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, Surely God will visit you. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the Lord." 
Now, just jump down a little bit in chapter 14 to verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Right? So there's, you know, we know about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, and we know that that's how God led. And, and when, the, when the cloud lifted, then the people packed their bags and followed the cloud, and the fire was the, you know, all this stuff. Well, this is telling us that in the midst of that, the angel of God is involved in leading the people of Israel as they make their way um, through the wilderness. Angelic beings involved in um, leading, directing, defending, protecting, you know, do, doing what angels do um, as the people are brought uh, to God at Mount Sinai where God makes a covenant with them. That's the involvement, the activity of angels. Then just jump, jump ahead a little bit to Exodus 33. In verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. The point is just to give you, know, give you uh, again, a connection between what the, what the folks getting this letter to the Hebrews would have had in mind, what Stephen had in mind, there is the involvement of angelic beings in this whole matter of Israel's um, uh, exodus, um, the establishing of the covenant at Mount Sinai, which is the context for chapter 33. They're at the mountain, right? God is giving them the law. Um, and there is this reference to angels. And I, I didn't include other passages, but you can think of passages like the classic passage, Isaiah 6, uh, when Isaiah has his vision of the glory of God in the temple. And what does he see? I mean, he, sees, he actually sees the glory of God veiled, right? It's, it's smoky. There's a curtain of smoke. But what he also sees is angelic beings. He sees the seraphim. Surrounding the throne, um, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of his glory. Um, and you can, think, you can think, too, of the vision of Ezekiel, which uh, when, when he is given a vision of the glory of God in those first two or three chapters, there are angelic beings involved. And, and that sort of imagery obviously carries over into the New Testament when John is given a vision of God in his glory and of Christ uh, resurrected and ascended and given power and dominion and authority, ruling and reigning, what else does John see? Myriad upon myriad of angels, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of angels. 
So whenever God shows up, he doesn't show up alone. Right? He shows up with these angelic beings. And in the minds of, uh, again, in the mind of Stephen uh, and in um, uh, the minds of um, the folks who were receiving this letter, angel, angels figured prominently in the establishing of the Old Testament covenant, to use Stephen's language, the delivery of the law, they figured prominently um, uh, in, uh, in Israel's life. And uh, so what, what the writer wants to do, again, being cognizant of this, wants to assert, wants to argue, doing it with scriptural proof, that Jesus is superior to the angelic beings. Okay? Now, what we're going to see in, in just a little while, I hope, uh, is that Jesus, by virtue of his incarnation, looks like he's lower than the angels, right? Because his, his glory is clearly veiled by his humanity. And the writer is cognizant of that, which we'll, which we'll see in a minute. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I would suggest is going on um, uh, with respect to angelic beings. So having established scripturally that Jesus is superior to the angels, um, having identified the role of angels as ministering agents, and as agents of the administration of the Old Covenant, you come in these first few verses to the first admonition, the first warning. Okay, we've, we've read, uh, read these verses, but just, just verse 1. Therefore, you know, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore is there, having argued for the superiority of Jesus. The writer is now saying, given that, on the basis of that, because Jesus is superior, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. We must pay closer attention. See, there he is, playing the preacher. He's, he's, he's presented them with truth. He's now pressing that truth home. He's applying that truth, admonishing his readers to pay closer attention. And then there is... Uh, in these verses, this contrast uh, between that which was declared by the angels, that's then, and what is declared by the Son, which is now. Okay, And that sort of takes you back. Again, we're thinking about exposition here. Here's our text. Here's exposition. In the text up here, in the first verse, the writer has said, God spoke to us long ago at many times and in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. What was delivered by the angels was back there. What is delivered by the Son is right now and for right now. And that's what we have to pay closer attention to. Not disconnected from that, clearly. But it is what the Son has revealed that we must pay attention to. And then he goes on to show these two types of attestation. What the Son declared was attested to by those who heard it. 
Now, who's he referring to there? Well, among others, he's referring to Peter and John. So I think we can conclude from this that the author of this letter, because he includes himself in this, right, verse 3, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. So there is the Lord, there is those who saw it and who attested to it, and then there is sort of the third generation. If Jesus is the first generation, the one who reveals it, those who saw it are the second generation, then this person, together with his readers, are sort of the third generation. Okay? And what Jesus revealed and declared was attested to us by those who heard it. Who are those who heard it? Peter and John, among others. And I've given you a couple of passages, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, where Peter reflects upon his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the humanity of Jesus, again, is sort of peeled away, and the glory of Jesus is made manifest. Right? Remember, this is an argument, this letter, an argument for the supremacy, the excellence, the superiority of Jesus. Peter saw Jesus in all of his glory, a glory immeasurably greater than the glory of angels or anything else. John, in his first letter, the first three verses, makes reference to the same thing. We've beheld his glory. We've seen his glory. He does the same in his, in his gospel, the first chapter. Um, so John and those uh, other apostles are those who attested to the writer of this letter and to others um, what it was that was declared by the Lord. The second form of attestation is God's own attestation through signs and wonders. Um, and, you, you, you know, that begins, actually, that attestation, God's attestation to the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus, uh, occurs throughout the book of Acts, but it occurs in, in a, uh, an extraordinary way on the day of Pentecost. And that's why I've included Acts 2.22 and following. That's where Peter begins to preach and interpret this event that all of these people have just witnessed, where the Spirit has fallen and tongues of fire rest upon the heads of, um, of those who are gathered. And, there's, and, and people from all of these different regions are hearing the gospel in their own tongue, in their own tongues. Okay, well, that is God's attestation to the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel of Jesus, um, uh, and and um, that sort of attestation continues beyond it, it. It it you know there really are three Pentecosts in the Book of Acts. I don't know if you've ever seen this or thought about it, but just think about this. Right, Jesus had said to the disciples, "You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem." Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's a Pentecost for Jerusalem, where the Spirit falls there. There's a Pentecost for Samaria, when the Samaritans believe. And there's a Pentecost in Ephesus, when the gospel in its fullness is preached to the Ephesian believers, Acts chapter 19. 
fulfilling the promise of Christ that the gospel would be for Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So there, there is this repeated attestation through the book of Acts by God of the supremacy of Jesus, the excellence of Jesus, and the truth of the gospel. So there's the admonition to pay closer attention, and then with that admonition to pay closer attention, there really is a warning, right? There is a warning. How shall we escape? How shall we escape? If their unbelief, meaning the unbelief of the Israelites, who received what was the imperfect, incomplete, true but imperfect and incomplete revelation of the gospel, if their unbelief received a retribution, how shall we escape? It's sober. It's very sober. And I've, I've included here um, in the notes, uh, see Exodus 32, 25 to 29, and Numbers 16. Exodus 32 is when Moses comes down from the mountain. The people are, um, I mean, it's way more than a Super Bowl party, right? It's the whole golden calf thing, and thousands of people die. Thousands of people die because of their idolatry. Um, number 16 is Korah's rebellion, okay? where thousands more die because the authority of Moses is challenged. Okay? It's a sober warning. Okay? That was imperfect and partial. And if unbelief received that kind of response then, what kind of resp- how shall we escape if we neglect to pay closer attention, if we neglect to embrace what is far superior to what they had. I didn't include this in the notes, but as I'm thinking about this, there actually, there actually is an illustration, of the, a couple of illustrations of the very, very grave danger that there is in failing fully and truly to embrace the fullness of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And one of them is Acts chapter 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? I mean, here here you have Pentecost chapter 2, and the church is exploding, and thousands of people are being added to the church. And God is moving so mightily among people that they're kind of doing in Acts 3 and 4, 2, 3, and 4, particularly the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 4, people are doing the kind of thing that they did Back in Exodus 35, when, when God had invited the people to bring their gifts, all kinds of gifts, so that they could build the tabernacle and they could beautify the tabernacle and they get to a place where Moses has to tell them to stop, stop bringing, we don't need any more, right? It's never been my experience in the church, <laughs> Right? Well, you know, people are being incredibly liberal and you get, you get to the end of chapter 4 of the book of Acts and Barnabas sells, a, sells a, you know, some acreage and he brings the prophets from the sale and he lays it at the feet of the apostles for, for use in the community. And then chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira appear to be doing the same thing. You know the story, right? But they're not doing the same thing. They're actually lying to the Holy Spirit is the, is the language that's used. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost, 
It's as though God was saying, look, the fuller has come, the greater has come. You think grace was big back there? It's immeasurably greater here. It's immeasurably greater here. But don't forget, I am still the Holy One of Israel. Right? And then there's the 1 Corinthians 11 thing, where Paul is addressing the Corinthians regarding the Lord's Supper and, and says, look, your failure to discern the body, and, and I don't believe, and I just, we don't have time for me to argue this, but I believe what he's talking about. He's not talking about the body of Jesus there. Failure to discern the elements that are used in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He's referring to the unity of the body of Christ. Your failure to discern the unity of the body, these divisions in the church where the rich are having a party and the poor don't get anything to eat, that does violence to the unity of the body. And because of your failure to discern this and take it seriously, some of you have died, have grown sick, and some of you have died. Right? What's going on there? Well, there's this, I mean, boy, that, I mean, that, kind, of, that kind of makes your, your, the earth move, right? Tremble beneath, beneath your feet. Look, God's grace is bigger than any of us. I love that story this morning, you know. You know, God is much more merciful than the neighbors. I mean, infinitely so. Right? But God... God will not suffer the excellence of his son, the beauty of his son. He will not suffer the excellence of his son to be in any way compromised or competed with. He he wants his son exalted because he knows that his son is the one in whom there is life. Right? So there you know there is a it's a very very sober warning and admonition here. How shall we escape? And let's just remember that, that the, the, the setting here, the context here, if you go back to, to week one, to our very first week, there is a real danger among these folks of drifting away, language that he uses here, uh, of drifting away. Don't, don't drift away. Uh, don't neglect this. Don't fall away. Okay. Um, that's, that's the thing that these folks are, um, are being tempted by. They're being tempted uh, to reject, to, to withdraw under the threat of persecution and opposition. Um, and, and so there's a real danger for them. And, and so the writer is admonishing them to pay closer attention, to see the excellence of Jesus uh, and embrace the excellence of Jesus. Okay, so then at verse 5, um, having offered this first admonition, the writer returns to the exposition. Okay, so you got exposition, then you got this little this little interlude of admonition. Chapter two, verses one through four. At verse five, he comes back to the exposition and it continues to show us that Jesus is more excellent than the angels, showing Jesus as the ruler and redeemer of his people. Okay, first as the ruler, verses 5 through 9, and he, and he weaves together, this is a little bit hard to sort of separate out into a kind of a neat outline, because what he weaves together here is the prior 
exaltation of the Son, then weaving into his understanding of the prior exaltation of the Son, his, what we call his humiliation through his incarnation, his earthly life and ministry, culminating ultimately in his betrayal, uh, his arraignment, uh, the judgment passed upon him, his execution, and his entombment. Okay? That's what, that's, we talk about the exaltation of Christ and the humiliation of Christ. Well, Christ, prior to the incarnation, knew the glory of his Father. That's what he longed to get back to. You know, he longed to get home, if we can be sort of pedestrian about it. Um, but then through his humiliation, Christ, uh, uh, including his incarnation and all of the rest, leading to his death and entombment, his then subsequent exaltation begins with his resurrection and then his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns in glory. And in these, in these verses, you get, you get those notions sort of woven together, okay? First, the exaltation of, of the Son with scriptural proof, again. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. And where is the somewhere? Psalm 8, okay? Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? By the way, that phrase, son of man, Jesus uses that all the time with respect to himself. Other people call him other things, but his favorite self-designation is son of man. And it comes principally, principally from three places. Ezekiel used the phrase a lot. Daniel's visions incorporate that phrase. And then Psalm 8 uses this phrase, son of man. Okay? And in one way or another, from the Old Testament, the use of that phrase is Jesus asserting himself as the eternal son of God, the one who inherits from the Father power and authority and glory. Okay, so it's, it's really, it really is an attribution of Jesus' divinity and co-equality with the Father. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now you have crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. I mean, there's the exaltation and glory of Christ together with the humiliation of Christ, Right, his incarnation being a little lower than the angels, then Christ being exalted with everything put under his feet. Um, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left left nothing outside his control. At present, this is such a great verse. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't, do we? We don't see everything in subjection. There are rebels running around all over the place. Right? All over the place. We don't see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him who was... How do we see him? We see him with the eyes of faith, right? We see him with the eyes of faith. We do see him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we see Jesus now, previously exalted through his humiliation, restored to his Father and exalted to the, to the Father's right hand. We see him as the King of glory, ruling and reigning over everything. We don't see everything subjected to him, but we do see him ruling and reigning. And I just, I stuck this little, this little asterisk thing in there, right? Remember the five motifs, right? Remember the five motifs. What is the Bible story? The Bible story is the story of the kingdom of God, God who establishes a kingdom. And in that kingdom, there are five things, right? If you're going to have a kingdom, you have to have four, but in this kingdom, you have a fifth. If you're going to have a kingdom, what do you have to have? You've got to have a king or a ruler who gives his law, who governs. If you're going to have a kingdom, you've got to have people. And if you're going to have a kingdom, you've got to have a place. Now, in this kingdom, what's the fifth element? Prosperity, blessing, okay? But I just, I, I had to make that little notation because here you see, this is one of the five motifs. One of the things that ties the whole of Scripture together is this idea of Jesus the King ruling and reigning over his people for their good, for his own glory, okay? So, Jesus is more excellent than the angels because he is the ruler, and Jesus is more excellent than the angels as the redeemer. And, um, you know, we just have to blow through this. I mean, it pains me to do it, but we have to just blow through this. Jesus the redeemer, just here are the verses. Jesus made like his people and made perfect through suffering. Made like his people. There's, there's the incarnation again. Jesus, not as a figment of somebody's imagination, but the second person of the Trinity comes into this world and takes a nature to himself just like yours. Which is why he is then able to be a faithful and sympathetic high priest to whom we can appeal in the midst of our suffering. Which comes at the end of chapter 4. Right? made like his people, and made perfect through suffering. Now, what does that mean? That sounds weird. You mean Jesus was imperfect? No, Jesus wasn't imperfect. But as Hebrews says, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He was made complete in that sense through the things that he suffered. i got to read this for you. I was going to try and read it this morning, and I forgot it, um, and I ran out of time, both. This is, this is a, um, gosh, this is so good. This is a collection of excerpts from the letters of Samuel Rutherford. Okay, Listen to this. It is the Lord's kindness. Now, now this isn't about Jesus. This is about us, okay? Jesus made perfect through Suffering, made complete, 
learned obedience through the things that he suffered, meaning learned to entrust himself to the Father, learned to go to the Father, learned to depend upon the Father, believe the Father, okay? Setting an example for us. That's what Peter says in his second letter. He set an example for us. Okay? Suffering, the role of suffering in the life of Jesus. Here's Samuel Rutherford's take on it for us. It is the Lord's kindness that he will take the scum off us in the fire. Who knows how needful winnowing is to us and what draws we must want ere we enter into the kingdom of God. So narrow is the entry to heaven that our knots, our bunches, and lumps of pride and self-love and idol love and world love must be hammered off us that we may throng in, stooping low and creeping through that narrow and thorny entry. Don't you love that? I mean, I don't love that, but... Right, Our bunches and lumps of pride and self-love and idol love and world love must be hammered off us. But the point here is that, right, isn't this it? In the midst of the hammering, as he's burning the scum off of us, there's somebody we can go to who understands exactly what this is like who understands exactly what it's like to walk through this world uh, and to experience suffering. Jesus was made like his people. He was made perfect through suffering. Jesus identifies with his people. Chapter 2, verse uh, uh, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, right? There's an identification between them. Um. Point three, um, Jesus identifying with us, Jesus' victory over death, over the power of death, and over the fear of death as our Redeemer. He gains victory over death, over the power of death, and over the fear of death. 2, 14 through 15. And so 2, 18, Jesus is our helper. Are angels our helpers? Yes. Have angels experienced what you've experienced? Nada. No. Has Jesus? Yes. And so he is more excellent, more superior. Okay. um, I didn't do it. I didn't get there. I didn't get there. Point two. Boy, this is crazy. Um, I got five minutes. All right, so this is point one. Jesus more excellent than the angels. We'll come back to this next week, won't we, Glenn? <laughs> All right, let's do let's do a, let's do a um, again just a quick overview here. Jesus point, point two in our sermon. Jesus more excellent than the angels. Jesus is more excellent than Moses and Joshua. Chapter three, verse one, through chapter four, verse thirteen. Um, Moses and Jesus are contrasted, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Um, And the contrast there is a contrast between Moses as a picture of Christ, which points ahead to Christ. Now that's, 
you know, this, this is one of those ninth grade biology exercises. All right? Right? You've heard this illustration. The ninth grade biology professor gives his, each of his kids a fish and says, I want you to take the fish back to your desk and I want you to write down everything you observe about the fish. And they do it for two minutes and they say, I'm done. And he says, keep looking. I'm done. Keep looking. I'm done. Keep looking. Think of all of the ways in which Moses is a picture pointing away from himself to the greater Moses who is the Christ. Think of all of the ways in which Moses is a pointer. I mean, you can, you can distinguish the ways in which Moses and Jesus are not alike, right? But in his role as... The text says, verse 2, as one who is faithful in all God's house, right? Faithful over that Old Testament house, all of the ways in which he points and directs our attention away from himself to the greater Moses, who is the Son and who is faithful over that house. I mean, just, you know, just as an example, read Exodus. 31, 32, 33, 34, that whole business on the mountain. And see Moses receiving the word of God. And see Moses longing for God's glory. And see Moses, when the people have sinned, interceding for the people. And, and hear Moses, when God says to Moses, look, let's just, let's just wipe these people out and start over with you. Hear Moses saying, that would not be good for your reputation. Right? All of the ways in which Moses is a pointer away from himself to the greater Moses who is Christ. So Moses is a picture of Christ uh, pointing ahead to Christ. Israel is a picture of the church, a type pointing to us. Verses 5 through 7. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. We are his house. Who is the we? Well, the the we is those who have embraced the son, right? Uh, Those who have embraced the greater Moses, who is Jesus. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let me just make this point, just make this point. As you read through the New Testament, the house of God is what? It's the temple. It's the temple. As you read through the New Testament, the word temple is used with respect to one of two things. The temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed in 70 AD or the church. Actually, one of three things. Jesus refers to himself as the temple, the greater temple, number one, or the temple that's destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD and the church. Right? So, if you want to find a temple, where are you going to find it? Right here, believers. And somebody like Peter, you read you read First Peter. Peter refers to Jesus as as the living stone, 
and talks about us as living stones being built into a habitation for God, we are the temple. We are the house. And that Old Testament temple, that Old Testament tabernacle, pointed ahead to the greater and actually more glorious and more beautiful temple, the more glorious tabernacle, which is Jesus and all of those who are being built into him, a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. Okay. So, Jesus, more excellent than Moses, second admonition. And it's, it's a, I've, I've gathered it together as a, a kind of a second admonition, but you see in these verses, verse 1 of chapter 3 and then verse 12 and verse 1 of chapter 4, this repeated admonition, consider Jesus, take care, let us fear. Okay? Again, I, I just love this. Point number one, Jesus more excellent than the angels. There's an admonition attached to that, right? Point two, Jesus more excellent than Moses and Joshua. And there are admonitions sprinkled throughout this where the preacher is saying, take care, let us fear, Um, consider Jesus, admonishing people, prompting people, pushing people to be careful about this. Um, And again, um, he provides scriptural support uh, for this admonition. Numbers 13 and 14 uh, is the Old Testament background to the citation that's in verses 7 through 11. Um, and you know what that story is, right? It's, it's the story of the spies being sent into the land, and they, you know, they come back, and the ten make a bad report, and the two make a good report. The two, Caleb and Joshua, are vindicated. They get to go into the land at the end of their lives. But the rest of them, what happens to the rest of them? Everyone under 20 years of age, 40 years, they die in the wilderness. They don't get to go in. Okay? So, um, and, and what's, what's just so important here in this is this danger, the danger of an unbelieving heart. The danger of an unbelieving heart. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith to those who listened. So, so what's he doing here? He's, he's presenting Jesus, more excellent than the angels, more excellent than Moses. And then he's, he's, he's calling upon them to do some sober self-evaluation. Right? He's, doing, he's doing what Paul does in 2 Corinthians. If you flip over, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to make sure that you are in the faith. That's what he's doing. That's what the writer's doing. He's encouraging them to take, to take note, to, to look in their hearts uh, and um, to consider whether in their hearts there is this, this root of unbelief, this, this deep unbelief that would cause them to reject all of this and withdraw. And then chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, there is still this prospect this wonderful prospect of entering into this rest. 
uh, and there's a, the danger of missing it because of unbelief. The danger of missing it, right? Now, I, I know that this raises all these questions of, of eternal security and all of that kind of stuff. That stuff sort of kind of hangs on the periphery and on the edges of our thinking. We've talked about that some, talked about it a couple, three weeks ago. We'll, we'll talk about it again. Let me just say this. The writer of this letter is simply being a good pastor. <laughs> he's just being a good pastor. He's presenting the excellence of Jesus, and he's encouraging people to be reflective, to be sober, to examine their hearts, and to make sure, to make sure that they really and truly have, have embraced and are pursuing um, the Lord Jesus. And then the last thing, Jesus, more excellent than Joshua, um, there is a greater rest. Um, let's see, verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You know, I didn't even weave into this uh, the fact that Jesus is the greater Sabbath rest. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is the greater Sabbath rest. The, 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 the earthly land of Canaan, look, for 2,000 years it's, and before, for four, for six, for however many, I mean, it's just been... A place of conflict. It's been a place, and it's anything but rest. Now, Solomon had his moment, and you know everything was cool for a few years. But other than that, it's been a place. Of, there is a greater rest, and the greater rest is the Sabbath rest of Jesus, the Son of Man, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. So, um, and then you get what in these verses fourteen through sixteen, you get this transition. Um, moving us now from Moses and Joshua to Aaron and Melchizedek, where the bulk of the time is going to be spent. Jesus, who is the great high priest, again, summarizing what he said thus far, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? We're in a time of need. This wilderness wandering is a needy time. And we need a great high priest. And Jesus, as we will see uh, in chapter 5 and following, is that greater high priest, greater than Aaron and Melchizedek. Okay. Thanks for tolerating an extra few minutes. We made it. Glenn is going to uh, take the session next Sunday. You know where we are in this. Do you have an outline? No, no, no. I just mean the, the schedule is for next week, it's Hebrews 5, 1 through 6, 20. Okay. And in the book, in this book, it's chapters 8 through 11. Okay. Hebrews 5, 1 through 6, 20, and chapters 8 through 11. Okay? So there we are, and we get into, we get into Aaron and Melchizedek. Okay, here you go. It's, like, it's almost like a flyover, you know? But if we're going to get this thing done by Palm Sunday, we've got we to do that. Yeah.
Okay, let me pray for us and uh, go watch the rest of the Super Bowl or Downton Abbey or whatever it is you want to watch. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thanks for this day. Thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for your, your tender mercies. Um, thank you that you have given your son a, a great and glorious and beautiful Savior. Uh, again, may, may our vision of him uh, grow greater. May his greatness grow larger in our field of vision, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have questions.